0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 191 of The Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good
1: Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We have a thank you. Yes, big thank you to Tanya for your contribution. It was lovely. Yeah, Tanya sent us a
0: contribution via PayPal. She actually, in the email, said, I really want to contribute something to the podcast, but I don't want to sign up for something monthly that my partner would have to know how to cancel if I die. Oh,
1: good point. <laughs> well, hopefully that's not anytime soon, yeah, Tanya. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, what a responsible person, Tanya. We we get it, and that's why we also offer the option to contribute via PayPal. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So speaking about contributions, we did want to give one more shout out to our summer drive for patreon we do a summer drive as you can tell if you've been listening to the last couple episodes we don't mention it very often but we are looking for six new members to make our goal for this summer so if you've been thinking about becoming a member of our patreon community we would love for you to join soon and you can do it monthly or annually yes
0: that's a new option we offer and that information is available in the show notes So on this episode, we are going to bid adieu to our scarlet summer. I know, I can't believe it's over. I know, it's been a lot of fun.
1: Absolutely.
0: And it's not quite over. We still have a little bit of fun ahead, but...
1: We do. We had, um, (laughs) September 19th was the deadline for folks to submit their bingo cards and we had four squeaking in on that deadline day, yes, including mine and Emily's. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to everyone who submitted your bingo card. We're going to be getting them all together and then picking a lucky winner, which will be announced in our September newsletter, which will be coming out on the last day of September.
0: Yeah, and that too is in the show notes, but you just go to bookcougars.com forward slash subscriber.
1: Right. And we send out the monthly email. So talking about uh, Scarlet summer, <laughs> we had our conversation about our last book, the invisible hour by Alice Hoffman.
0: Yes. We had some listeners join us on a zoom conversation. Thank you everyone who contributed to that conversation.
1: Yes. And to Melinda for doing the screenshot since my computer was not in the mood to do such things that evening. We had a really good conversation. I think the the response to the novel was a bit mixed
0: that That's a kind way of saying a lot of people didn't love it, yeah, yeah, including myself, and I'm an avid Alice Hoffman reader. And I was disappointed. This is not the book that I would recommend as the entry point to reading an Alice Hoffman.
1: Yeah. And I know we talked about it a bit last episode. It just felt really uneven between the two parts. The first part was really engaging. And then the second part, when Nathaniel Hawthorne comes along, it just lost a lot of people.
0: Yeah. And part of it was, is it imaginable that you would fall head over heels in love with Nathaniel Hawthorne? And would the reading of the Scarlet Letter be something that you were totally swept up in and you could sit down and read it in one sitting as
1: Mia does in the novel? When you're feeling suicidal. Right. Yeah. That's a big question.
0: And I think some people would say, yes, some people who find reading the Scarlet Letter is super pleasurable and they read it every year. You know who you are, if you know who you are. (laughs) 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 Um, But for me, I know the reading of The Scarlet Letter was really challenging, and I could only read a few chapters, even though they were very short chapters, and then I got out my Cliff's Notes and read them and helped me along with it. There were some questionable parts of the novel, whether it was believable.
1: Right. And just that the two parts, the first part was so well developed and carried people along very effortlessly for the most part. And then the second part seemed a little thin. Right. Yeah. Since that conversation, I've read a couple reviews. And one of them, we could put a link in the show notes to the review. But um, I got a kick about the comments from readers. And it wasn't a very positive review. It said many of the same things that we're saying here. And particularly about Hawthorne being a love interest for a contemporary woman with the attitudes that he held and one of the commenters said, it's maybe a little less terrible than Emily Dickinson as a vampire? Question mark. <laughs> Which totally made me laugh out loud. <laughs>
0: yes, the comments are great.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of comments, too, about him being so handsome. hmm yeah. yeah. So, but thanks to everyone who talked about it with us. We don't love every book we read. And every book that we choose as a read along is a bit of a gamble. (laughs) Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it's been a great summer. I've had so much fun learning more about Nathaniel Hawthorne exploring New England. Really great time. I'm glad we did it. Yeah. And for those of you wondering what the fourth quarter read along is going to be, we're going to tell you at the end of this episode. Yes. Before our conversation with Shulie Kaywood,
1: Yeah. And that will also be included in the September newsletter. So I was going to say, don't hold your breath. Yeah, we're going to talk to We don't want long. you to pass out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's too much talking between now and then. Y'all know.
1: Yeah. So Chris, what are you currently reading? I am listening to a memoir, Adversity for Sale, You Gotta Believe, by JZ Jenkins, who was a rap artist. I was really whipping through it the first day or two that I was listening, and then this last week I've done hardly any driving, and that's where I listen to my audiobooks usually, so I have to get back into it. It's interesting because it's under a leadership, and he's a criminal at this point. He is a drug dealer, he was a thief early on, and he's talking about business and leadership and opportunities, and it's a little awkward, i got to say. I consider myself a pretty law-abiding citizen, so to look at a criminal as being a leader, it just kind of goes against some grain that I have. Mm -hmm. So I'm really looking forward to getting back to it to see what happens when he starts turning his life around, because it's really stressful, this section, and he's stressed, I should say. He's anxiety-ridden a lot of the time with the stress of the violent life of the street more to come on that one.
0: Well, we have a musical theme in there a little bit because I'm listening to The Creative Act, A Way of Being by Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin is known in the music world because he launched Def Jam recordings from his dorm room in New York City, and became a producer during the formative years of hip hop. But the book is about how artists relate to the world. And I am both reading it in an e-version and listening to the audiobook, which he narrates. And he's a meditator. He has been for years. And so he uses a gong, a meditation gong, in a lot of parts of the book, which I really appreciate. And he has a great voice. He talks a lot so far about how important it is to understand that your art isn't going to appeal to everybody. And if it appeals to 50% of people, then you're doing it right. You know, it doesn't have to be everything to everybody. And how important it is to figure out how interacting with the world helps your art. So I'm really enjoying it. I listened to an interview with him and Debbie Millman on her Design Matters podcast, and I got to the end of the interview and turned it right back to the beginning and listened again. And this is one of those books I think I've picked up when we've been at bookstores so many times, and finally I was like, okay, after I listen to this, get it, and listen, yeah. and read. So nice. here I am. Yeah, again, that's called The Creative Act by Rick Rubin.
1: Well, the other book I'm currently reading is Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, by Claire Detter. And I'm doing this as a buddy read with Britta, who's a BookTuber. Her channel is The Second Shelf. I am happy to be finally into this book. And it is about the fans dilemma thing. How do you consume or do you consume art by people who are monsters? We're not just talking rude, but people who have raped, people who've done awful things. And then they create beautiful art Do you boycott it? Do you attempt to separate the artist from the art? She's calling it an autobiography of the audience. She's trying to have the focus on the audience and not always having the focus on the monster, which is challenging. She's a critic. A lot of her examples are film-based. She starts with Roman Polanski and then moves on to Woody Allen, people who've done horrible things. I know I'm going to talk about this more. I'm at about the halfway point Willa Cather makes an appearance so I will be talking about that but what I like is that she's trying to not give absolute statements on this is what you should do because it's complicated one of the metaphors she uses and she brings this in when she's talking about Michael Jackson is the idea of a stain and how a stain happens and a stain can spread as more information comes out and I I appreciate that as a an image to consider because you have certain pieces of clothing say that could get stained. Some of them you toss, some of them you wear. I don't know the answer to this. I do know for me personally, I have a hard time reading things by people who I know have done horrible things. And there are some books I would like to read that I haven't because I just am disgusted by their creator. Mm, So I'm, I'm hoping this book will help me sort some things out. Yeah. When
0: I was visiting on Ellen in New York a couple weekends ago, we went to the Brooklyn Museum and saw the "It's Problematic" exhibit that Hannah Gadsby helped curate, and they had that book in the gift store there because Picasso is one of those artists. I would think if he doesn't appear in that book, could right? oh, he's
1: in here. Yeah, he is definitely in here, and and some of the heinous things he did, mm-hmm. yeah, are mentioned. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. well. Turning to food. I'm reading Consider the Oyster by MFK Fisher. I bought this. This is a tiny little book. It's just over 100 pages, I think. It was originally published in 1941. John Updike referred to MFK Fisher as our poet of the appetites. She has a really interesting writing style. I would almost call this an extended essay. And it is about the oyster that we have in the Long Island Sound here. The first sentence is, an oyster leads a dreadful but exciting life. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really enjoying her writing. There are several recipes as you go through. The first one is for oyster stew. So I'm also learning a lot about how to cook oysters, which I've only, since I moved to the Sound, I've only ever grilled them, which is super easy to do. So I've always wanted to read MFK Fisher. There's something a little bit scary to me about reading her. I don't know why, like Mm. not scary, intimidating is probably the right word. When we were at that beautiful bookstore in Kent, Connecticut, House of Books, they had these little books displayed. These are from North Point Press. And one of them was this MFK Fisher book, Consider the Oyster, so I picked it up. And it just stares at me all the time. So I finally decided to actually crack the cover, and I'm glad I did.
1: Yeah, and we'll have an oyster story coming up in Biblio Adventures. So,
0: oh, yes, yeah. we will. That's a little <laughs> tease for you.
1: <laughs> so, Emily, what have you just read?
0: Well, I finished Properties of Thirst by Marianne Wiggins. This is quite an epic novel. I enjoyed this book very much. And I've talked about it quite a bit. So the only thing I wanted to mention, I think the first time I talked about it, it was about how long it's been between novels for Marianne, she had a massive stroke. And the afterword of the novel is actually written by her daughter, who ended up helping her. She transcribed the words for her mother to write the last few chapters of the book. And what she talks about in the afterword is that her mom went in for a very simple procedure to have a stent put into her heart. And she ended up getting a phone call from the surgeon that she had a major aneurysm during that procedure, which is very rare. Her road back to recovery in large part had to do with her daughter and one other friend reading this novel to her over and over and over for years. And then she got to know the characters again. And then they took it on as a project to finish the writing of the novel. It's beautifully written. It is epic. I highly recommend it. It might land on my top 10. Again, that's called Properties of Thirst by Marianne Wiggins. Wow,
1: that's a beautiful story, Mm -hmm. what they did to help her complete that. Yeah, she had lost her short-term
0: memory and was having trouble with that aspect of her brain. And so by doing that,
1: it helped to reinvigorate her mind. That's great. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I finished Dante's The Inferno, so no one will have to point fingers at me. I know <laughs> last episode I said I was committed to that. I did not, however, finish it before our Zoom conversation with Colleen, Robin, Suzanne, and Colleen's Uncle Hank doing a buddy read of the complete divine comedy. And The Inferno is the first chunk and the most well-known of it all, This is Dante's descent into hell with Virgil as his guide going down all of the rings of hell, the nine levels of hell, getting to the bottom. And it is some gruesome poetry. I mean, it was written in the Italian. So I'm reading a translation. I ended up reading the John Ciardi translation. I've dipped into other ones as well. This is available in a mass market size from Signet Classics. So I was able to keep it in my purse. Very convenient. I was surprised by who was in hell because some of the classic authors who were alive prior to Jesus were in hell. And I thought, well, that's not very fair. But, um, (laughs) you know, unless you, you know, declare your belief in Jesus and Jesus has saved people, you're shit out of luck. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a bit cruel. But they're on the first level, so they're not really suffering that much, and they have each other to talk to. So there's that. Then you go all throughout these levels, and there's so much gruesome torture and torment going on. The different levels are for different types of sins, really intense. And and some of the imagery is modern-day horror. And I haven't done any kind of dipping into the history of this poem to see how original his imagery is. I have a feeling it probably was quite new, and maybe he did take imagery from other writings because he is very well read for his day and so he was able to bring in a lot of the classics classical literature i should say and this is a spoiler alert but i'm going to say it anyway at the bottom of hell is satan and you know what satan is in he's in ice Mm. i was so surprised Mm -hmm. you're the furthest away from the sun at that level of hell and so he's frozen in ice up to his chest And he has these big bat wings that he's continually flapping. And he also has three faces. So the flapping of his big bat wings helps keep everything frozen. I was so surprised by that. In other levels, there are these demons who there's a lot of fire and demons and pitchforks happening where we get our more contemporary idea of the devil and Satan, probably. So a lot of good surprises like that. There were some funny lines as well. He also pokes at the Germans a little bit. There's a snarkiness towards the French. There's even an Irish guy named at one point, which was so surprising because you don't expect to hear this Irish name pop up. But really interesting stuff, hard to get through. He's considered Italy's greatest poet and one who helped create an Italian literature and his dates were 1265 to 1321. So this is a very old text that has done a lot to shape a lot of thought in Western civilization. I'm so happy I'm doing this with a group of people. We are going on to read Purgatorio together. We have another Zoom set up for October. So if any listener out there wants to read the Inferno to catch up or just hop in with the Purgatorio and join us, you are quite welcome to. So interesting. So interesting. I'm so happy to be reading this why i want to know why well because it's one of those poems works that i've always heard about and i've read about and friggin dante is everywhere Mm -hmm. as we've been finding out he comes up so much just in our casual reading of modern day literature statuary that we've come across it's one reason why i read ulysses it's like those books and ideas that are just ubiquitous to our literary landscape or historical landscape Right. That's why I'm really glad to be reading this.
0: I wonder why the image of the devil as with the pitchfork has stuck versus the one with him in ice.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Just this big bat creature frozen in ice is not very scary, maybe. Hmm. I'm not really sure. And then yeah. around him, there are all these other souls who are frozen up to their necks Mm. and as dante's walking through like he kicks one of them in the face (laughs) just like whoa like violent it's very violent if you don't like to read violence you don't want to read the inferno emily's raising her hand right now it's very violent and scary i can (laughs) imagine this giving people nightmares yeah yeah Yeah. interesting well kudos to you yeah dante the inferno
0: so I finished Thin Places, A Natural History of Healing and Home by Carrie Ne Doharte. Although I have a copy of the book, which is beautiful and has this lovely iridescent moth wing on the cover. I ended up mostly listening to the audiobook she narrates and she just did such a good job. Sometimes I did that thing where I read along at the same time, but I mostly listened. The main thing I wanted to talk about, because I know I've also talked about this a couple times already, is the importance of nature to her and the healing of her mental health, and also how much undigested grief and trauma she had being raised and living through the troubles in Ireland, and how she ended up actually having to come home back to Derry to the literally the scene of the crime to be able to face that grief. It wasn't something she was able to be doing from elsewhere. And she was in a lot of trouble. She was drinking and just numbing herself and not being successful in her life and ended up coming back home and having a relationship with a man that she had known when she lived there before and doing a lot of work, getting sober, taking time in nature and facing her traumas which has led now to this new book she has, Cacophony of Bones, which I'm looking forward to reading where she lives somewhere else and has had a child and everything. Thin Places was not an easy book to read because she has a lot of mental health issues and there's death and things like that, but her writing is beautiful. So a little bit of a trigger warning, not the easiest book to get through, but I'm glad I did. Thin Places, A Natural History of Healing in Home by Carrie ni
1: The other book I read was Cleat Cute by Meryl Wilsner. This book just published on Tuesday. I would love to thank St. Martin's Griffin for sending us a review copy. It's a romance. It's a lesbian romance, and we are going to be talking more about what romance novels are in our Biblio adventure section. It was, uh, it was an interesting read. Let's put it that way. It's 326 pages or so. To me, it felt a little bit long at times. You know, this is a soccer romance. So there are two main characters. Phoebe is the young woman who's just graduated college. She's on her first professional soccer team down in New Orleans. And there's an older woman. She's 26, but she's been playing professionally for 10 years already. She's a superstar. She's on the women's national soccer team internationally famous. They're on the same team, but they actually meet at one of the National Soccer League's camps. And so it's Phoebe's first time being invited to the national camp. So it's a huge, huge big deal. And then she meets Grace, who is the older woman, who is like her superstar. like She grew up with a poster of her on her bedroom wall. There's that tension of Phoebe being the annoying young one, Grace being the older, not exactly jaded one, but set in her ways person. Of course, there's sexual attraction between them. Things happen by page 100. I think they were having sex. Emily and I chatted about that on a recent booktube video. I like the characters for the most part. I enjoyed some of the soccer stuff. It's not deep into soccer, but it was kind of interesting to learn a little bit about it that Young players who are just starting out, many of them have to work two jobs. Mm, Yeah, especially for women. To make ends meet, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, Like, right? Most men who are starting out professionally don't have that problem. Grace, who's the older person, she has sponsorships. They get extra money for doing tournaments and stuff. So she's really well set financially. And I appreciated one of the points that came up within this book is that, for one, the financial aspect of women's sports, even professionally, that second jobs are needed. And then also just with a group of friends, like not assuming that everybody's in your financial situation. So to say, hey, let's all go out to dinner when people are on tight budgets, that can be really problematic. Yeah, I like to see that. It's a really interesting novel in terms of showing how new relationships can help us see new things about ourselves and how we can grow and change when new people come into our lives. And this is maybe a little bit spoilery, but both of the characters are neurodivergent. Phoebe has undiagnosed adults, ADHD, and Grace sees it blatantly because she has a sister who was diagnosed and is on medication for her ADHD, and she assumed that Phoebe knew about her own because there are some things she does to help her, like setting alarms, making notes about things, comes out that she doesn't know, and she's surprised to hear this, but Grace, who is also the team captain in New Orleans, you know, wants to take care of people. She's also falling in love with this person and sees it. So um, she turns to a social media platform that Phoebe loves and learns a lot from, and she tracks down ADHD TikTok videos that help with people understanding behaviors, what adult diagnosis looks like why it's different for women and girls, and the fact that women and girls don't get diagnosed, they get overlooked so often because they're manifests differently sometimes. So I really enjoyed that. Obviously, you want to go to a professional to get a diagnosis and not diagnose yourself on TikTok. But I do have to say, personally, Laura has watched a lot of TikTok videos on ADHD that have helped her understand my behavior because I have it. So It was kind of cool to see that reflected in this novel. And then the other cool thing I'll mention before we move along, it's something that came up in Monsters. So the nonfiction book I'm reading is the idea of parasocial relationships. Have you heard that term before? I think so. Okay, I don't think I had. So parasocial relationships are what happens online these days when a person has followers who you don't know each other in person, but... So I'll just call it the fan, the fan thinks that they know that person that they're following deeply, that they know them, they know who they are, and that there's also some kind of reciprocity that they know me, right, as a fan. So that came up in the Monsters book by Claire Detter that I'm reading in the chapter on J.K. Rowling. Mm. And how, um, as she says here, parasocial relationship, it's the belief that we have real emotional connections with an artist Whose work we love. It's traditionally a sociological term. And again, she also says that they possess some knowledge about you. And I thought, how wild to have that concept come up at the same time reading two wildly different books. Yeah. So I appreciated that. And I'll talk more about monsters in the J.K. Rowling chapter when I finished the book. How did that come up in Cleek Cute then? It came up because Grace, who's famous, she does TV commercials and all this, everyone knows her name. She doesn't like that kind of attention. Again, a little spoilery, she may be on the spectrum and has a hard time showing emotions. She's also an introvert who are charges by having time alone. So having that kind of social pressure is not appealing to her. She wonders at times just about her friends who play soccer who are online and who share stuff like one friend shared her wedding on social media a video about that Mm -hmm. and just how she does not like that at all so Mm. that's how it came up there that parasocial relationships i was Mm -hmm. like
0: what yeah get out i mean i've had that experience (laughs) I'm not famous. And I'm not talking about a famous person. But even if you follow someone on Facebook, that's an acquaintance, not a friend, necessarily, but an acquaintance. And they post a lot about, let's say their children, for example, or a pet, not to compare pets and children, but, and then you meet them, you might be at a party and you see them and you start talking to them as if you know, everything about their children, because you kind of do. Right. And then you realize this is kind of weird and creepy. I've never even met their children. I just feel like I have.
1: Exactly, right. So I can
0: only imagine, if you're famous, how people really can
1: feel that way. I can't imagine how weird it must be. Yeah. I mean, I've had that happen before where I met somebody who's like, I know you. Like, I know you. And it turns out, like, his girlfriend and I are friends on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, my God. But it was so weird because yeah, yeah, that was even a peripheral relationship, right? Yeah. So I can't imagine if you're famous what that's like. So anyway, this was a romance. It has a happy ending. And I don't know. I mean, I've read romance novels before. I struggle a little bit with them because I don't really care if they get together. Mm. And I know they're going to get together so that takes away some of the mystery maybe interesting yeah. yeah so i'm I'm curious i have two other lesbian romance novels they have soccer themes i was going to read them all in a row and i think i need to take a break in between yeah yeah then you won't compare them as well or, exactly. or get really sick of soccer right and or, sex or well you know what i gotta say something about <laughs> the sex in this book there's a lot of sex it's graphic and it kind of me out a little bit <laughs>
0: Those young people having sex.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like, I prefer to have a little bit left to the imagination. Yeah, I guess. And that. I don't need to hear people's sex terms mm-hmm. and what they say during sex mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. I mean, that's just my preference. Again, this is Cleek Cute by Meryl Wilsner, available now. Well, I read a book called Zori by Laird Hunt
0: because the gentleman caller and I went to the Blackstone Library book sale because Lord knows we don't have enough books at home. (laughs) And we were like, we're not going to buy any books. Well, we came away with about 15, I think. But this one, not only does it have a beautiful cover that's very eye catching. This was Russell's number one book in 2021. When we do our top 10 books with Russell, the BookTuber from Ink and Paper blog, a memorable title, Beautiful cover. I was like, okay, this one I'm taking home. And I started it right when I got home and just tore through it. It's very short. I would almost say it's more of a novella size book. This takes place in rural Indiana. It's about Zori. It's very Midwestern. If you're a Marilyn Robinson reader, this book will feel familiar to you. I had issues with Gilead. So the fact that I love this makes me nervous to compare it to Marilyn Robinson, but it is similar in the Midwestern way. Zori's parents die of diphtheria when she's really young. So she goes to live with her aunt. This is an example of a sentence. This is just a descriptor of the aunt. This aunt, whom her dying father had only called on reluctantly, for she had drunk too deeply from the cup of bitterness after a badly failed marriage. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh, right? So Zori sets off after living with this aunt who wasn't happy, didn't believe in being hopeful, all these things that you think a young woman growing up, you know, to go move in with a bitter aunt, horrible. Mm -hmm. The aunt ends up dying and Zori goes off to try to make her way and ends up at the radium dial company painting the glowing numbers on clock faces, This is way back a long time ago. She meets some friends there that become lifelong friends, even though she doesn't stay working there very long. She ends up marrying, moving back to her hometown and living with her husband, Harold, for a very short time. He ends up going off to the war and dying, which is not much of a spoiler because that happens really early in the book. And the rest of the novel is really about her living on her farm in this small town, And living a pretty quiet life with the people around her. It's the phrasing, the turns of phrase. Like, I wanted to read this for you, Chris. At one point, she gets a puppy called Oats. And the very first time, she pets Oats. Zori put a hand into the box and brushed her finger against a stomach the size of a large russet potato and tight as a balloon. (laughs) I mean, doesn't that just like you can feel that little puppy belly, yes, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I loved this book so much. If you haven't gotten your hands on it, I highly recommend you do. I'm going to read you one other part. As she's reflecting towards the end of her life, she said she'd ridden shotgun to joy in too many of life's roadsters to get mournful about it at the end. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so Zori by Laird Hunt highly recommend. Russell, you know, he really doesn't lead us astray.
1: Remember, because he told you to read that Jen Chaplin. Yeah. Memoir. Yep. Yeah. And you loved it. Yeah, so. My autobiography of Carson McCullers who I love that one so
0: much. Yeah. Yeah. I finished Bombshell by Sarah McLean. This is the first book in the Hell's Bells trilogy, at least so far, it's a trilogy. Sarah McLean in the author's note says that she was on deadline for a different novel and she was on Twitter and she came across a tweet referencing the 40 elephants, which was the women's branch of the elephant and castle gang, the largest gang in Victorian London. The elephant boys who were the, the male counterpart to that gang were into the things that gangs are usually into, but the women were less overtly violent, and they were known for hiding things like in their undergarments, stealing things and sneaking them out, and also hiding weapons in their undergarments. They made specialty undergarments (laughs) so that they could do that. And so this book, it's fiction, but it's loosely based on the idea of that gang and the Hells Bells gang of women are after men in Victorian England who are doing bad things and making the world difficult for women. There's one scene where Cecily, who's the main character, who's also known as Sexily, she ran into danger. Instead of running away from danger, Cecily ran towards the danger. And she's talking to her love interest, Caleb. And he says, you ran towards the danger. And then Cecily says, and if I had waited, would you have let me enter of course not. Men are ridiculous. And he says, for wanting to keep you safe. And she turns to him and says, for believing that you aren't the thing from which we are most in danger. Mm. Amen, sister, right? Mm -hmm. So she does have this love interest, Caleb, who's forever frustrated by her heading towards danger, just like in that scene. But she and her band of friends are blowing shit up and taking care of men the way that they need to be taken care of in these particular situations. It takes place in 1836. Chris and I are learning a lot about romance. We're going to talk about that in our Biblio Adventure segment. But one of the things I have to say, partly because it took place in Victorian London, and also because it's a romance, I learned so much vocabulary in this book. I was constantly writing words down and then going and looking them up. So I really appreciated that part of it. There was a lot of sex, not particularly graphic, so a little different than the novel you read. But there were also fight scenes, and I was thinking as I was reading that they must be equally difficult
1: to write, you know? Oh yeah, choreography, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's like sex and books. Like I want it to be like food and books. I want to know it tastes good. It feels good, but I don't need to know the details about your saliva and it dripping down your chin.
0: Well, there was a lot about things feeling good in mouths in this book, Chris, so I think you would (laughs) have liked it a lot. That's Bombshell by Sarah McLean.
1: Oh, Emily's (laughs) blushing.
0: It's adorable. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So, Biblio Adventures. We did some Biblio adventuring together again. We've been we've been doing
1: a lot of joint jaunts. Well, right. I mean, even in addition to the our Scarlet Summer, we went to New York City. Yes, and got to see Aunt Ellen. I know you saw her earlier in the summer. I was super happy to be able to spend some time with her before she heads back to California.
0: Yeah, we hopped an early train. We met at Grand Central. And we did something I'm not sure we've done together before, which is we headed up to the Upper East Side. We had some goals in mind, as we often do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And we were first looking for food. We were all a little bit hungry, and we thought, you know, let's eat first so we don't have any hangry situations. So we were heading towards a bagel place of some kind when Emily hit the brakes. Yes,
0: because we walked right past us restaurant called Maman, which is known to me because, you know, it's all about bakeries. It is a bakery. Their chocolate chip cookies were chosen as one of Oprah's favorite things years ago. But they have a beautiful bakery and sandwiches and coffee and a lovely environment, which as I'm getting older is more important. Like it was quiet, we could hear each other. The food was delicious. So that was our first stop.
1: Yeah, really yummy. I'm glad we did that.
0: Yeah. And I am thankful to Chris and Ellen who were willing to literally take a left turn and step into that place we weren't expecting to
1: go. I will always trust you with food, Emily (laughs) Fine. (laughs) Thank you. No doubt about that ever. So then after that, we walked up to the New York Society Library, which is the oldest library in New York. They're on their third location, but they were created when New York was still a colony if amazing. you can imagine that yeah. they have a facsimile of their original charter on the hallway wall that you can see and it is a membership library meaning that only members can check books out and only members can access most of the library it's five stories tall i believe and it's in a former private residence a, a mansion but you can ask for a tour They'll give you a tour of the library and show you some of the study rooms and the different reading rooms that they have, and they'll show you a stacks area. And then they do have on the first floor a public area where they have their gorgeous card catalog and a long table where you can sit and work. And then you can go up to the second floor where they have a exhibit.
0: Yeah, very small space. It's kind of on a landing platform area in between rooms. But they packed a lot into this tiny space. And they were featuring someone who had been a member of the library.
1: Do you know if all the exhibits are always members? They're not always about that. Listeners might remember, and we'll try and find what episode that was. I had gone to see a Willa Cather exhibit that they had there because she'd been a member as well. And I asked our tour guide about that. And she said, not always. She said, the exhibit they had prior to this one was about fashion. Okay. So they mix it up. They look for things within their collection.
0: And this one was about Quackenbush, yes. <laughs> who was, for the most part, a children's author and illustrator. He wrote these beautiful children's books.
1: Yeah, I just have a vivid memory of the duck yeah. holding a flashlight and investigating something. That's all I remember, but like seeing those images yesterday brought it back to me.
0: Yeah. He was in World War II, and he was tasked with illustrating people's faces, like soldiers' faces. So his wife was quoted in the exhibit as saying that art literally saved his life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So his full name is Robert Quackenbush, and his dates were 1929 to 2021. Oh, wow. So he passed away recently and. And some of the materials were contributed by his wife. Yeah. Yeah. For this exhibit. But, and so they have pictures. And they had some of his paintbrushes and some of his tools and some of his workbooks. And then a lot of his different books that he illustrated.
0: Right. He also did little biographies. There was a little note in the exhibit that said because of family lore about his family, he was interested in understanding people's history. So he did biographies of famous
1: people like Mark Twain, and he illustrated all of them as well. He had a couple series, I guess, too. There's one with a gothic theme called Stairway to Doom, a Miss Mallard mystery. And Miss Mallard is walking up these stairs, and it almost looks like a duck trying to look like Dracula. You know, the Bella Lugosi kind of yeah. thing. And I think for different ages, what did we say from four to 10 mm-hmm. was maybe his main target yeah. audience for a lot of these? Just so colorful and quirky. Yeah. Loved that.
0: It was really sweet. And the other thing I wanted to say about the library is that when they took possession of this building, they took the back part of the building. Because the the main part, like what we're talking about where this exhibit is, the ceilings were super high. And when you get to the stacks, the ceilings were really low. And I asked the person giving us the tour, and she said, yeah, when they took possession of the building, they literally cut each of the floors in half, so they could fit more stacks in the back of the building.
1: Yeah, that was like a common technique for library storage back in the day. Mm -hmm. I know my college library had that too. They had these half floors to pack more in. And now, you know, we have that compact shelving right. that rolls, you know, and that's a way to cram more in. <laughs> Always getting more books in if we can. Yeah. But it was being
0: really well used. I mean, we did get to quietly peek into even the private member spaces.
1: And there were people in every room. Every room. Yeah. And then there are some famous writers who write there who are members. It's a great place to go to be undisturbed. Well,
0: I was looking. I I was going to disturb someone if I saw a famous person.
1: (laughs) And one of the things I enjoy is at three o'clock, they have tea time. Mm -hmm. So when I was there one day in the past, sitting at that big public table doing some work, the bell rang and then they came in with a cart with tea and cookies and a couple readers, scholars, writers, whatever came down and everybody kind of chatted about what they were currently working on or reading. And it was just so civilized. That's really sweet. I want to do that sometime. We totally should. That would be a great thing to do on a snowy winter day, wouldn't it? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. So after that,
0: we went to the corner bookstore, which was about a 15 minute walk farther north. And it's literally located on a corner on 93rd in Lexington beautifully curated very small bookstore not many sidelines mostly just straight books
1: yeah yeah it was really wonderful to browse through that
0: they had a couple park bench style benches at the front of the store that was the only place to sit and even those were piled with books you kind of had to push the (laughs) books over
1: yeah and they have a lovely old old timey cash register one of those old national ones that they're actually using for their transactions. And from conversations we overheard with community members, they actually have tabs, their accounts. yes, And so they can put things on their account, or they have a credit on their account, which I thought was kind of lovely.
0: Yeah, the first person who came in, I thought, oh, they must have returned some books they didn't like or something. I mean, there was a lot of conversation. And then By the third person I heard buying books, I was like, oh, these people just have like one of those index cards where they're spending down their $100 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool.
1: Yeah. So that was really nice. I enjoyed that bookstore very much. That would definitely be a great go-to neighborhood bookstore. Yes.
0: And then around the corner, Aunt Ellen and Chris indulged me and helped me go to a bucket list bookstore, which is Kitchen Arts and Letters which is a bookstore that it's all cookbooks and food-related books, and in large part caters to chefs in New York City and everywhere else, partly because they have such an extensive list of cookbooks, but they also have out-of-print books. Mm -hmm. So people who are doing research about food and are looking maybe to build a library, reach out to them as well.
1: Yeah, and I noticed they had some classics from 19th century women – homemakers, household books and cookbooks and things like that, which is really cool.
0: Yeah, it's a very cool bookstore. I have to say it surprised me how small it was. It was packed to the gills with books.
1: Yeah, but really well organized and friendly. Yeah, I overheard the owner talking with somebody who is there making a purchase who said something like, I I thought you'd like that one. I I had you in mind. Yeah. So he really knows his regulars, it sounds like.
0: Yeah, and it sounded like she had traveled quite far across the city to get there. And she was commenting on how nice it was that it wasn't as hot. So yeah, they definitely seem seem like they know people, but they were not aggressive with us at all. Mm-hmm. We browsed for a while. And when I went to pay for something, he was like, Oh, I'm glad you found something. No pushiness or anything right. like that.
1: Yeah. And he didn't mind us giggling over a book about hot dogs.
0: Yes. <laughs> So that was a really fun. I enjoyed that. And I had never heard of that bookstore.
1: You introduced me to that one.
0: Yes, I've always wanted to go. So that was really nice. And then we hopped the train back down to Grand Central and hit something else on our bucket list. Oh, my
1: gosh. We finally ate at the Oyster Bar, which... I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I've wanted to eat there. Yes. And I don't know why it's taken so long. I've been going to the city pretty regularly for 10 years. It was so delicious. And so
0: beautiful. So this is located right inside Grand Central Station. It's an iconic restaurant. It's beautifully tiled. It has a definite feel to it. It's broken up into three sections. There's their classic dining room, a bar that almost looks like cafeteria-style old
1: school seating. Yeah, the cafe counter, the, right? Because yeah, yeah. they are stools that yes. go around the counter.
0: They have a bar that's kind of a higher stool that faces where they're shucking the oysters, and then they have chairs to the left of that that are attached to the counter. And then if you go even farther back, there's a, what they call a saloon, which is a whole other version of a bar. She was describing all of this when she was asking us where we wanted to sit, and I didn't really understand that, but then when we had to go to the bathroom you walk through the saloon yeah so I can only imagine when that place gets crowded it must be really hopping we got there at 4 4 30 so it wasn't very crowded at all
1: yeah and when we were leaving more people started streaming in yeah the after work crowd yeah so oh so delicious and I had been looking at an oyster book at the bookstore because I'm I love oysters
0: and so. I had been reading Consider the Oyster happened to be right. the book I grabbed that morning to bring on the train. Yeah. So we did a lot of pictures which we'll post with putting M F K Fisher's book around on the oysters. That. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I had I had what were uh broiled blue point oysters with anchovy butter mm. is what I had. And it was delicious.
0: Yeah. And I had good old fashioned fried oysters with tartar sauce which i love
1: oh so
2: yummy
0: yeah it was really good it
1: was a great way to end the day
0: yes and aunt ellen does not eat seafood and she indulged us and she was still able to get food you can be a vegetarian and survive
1: there yeah yeah she got a nice plate of veggies and then also the order of fries that we all shared in their fries were yummy delicious yeah Yeah. highly
0: recommend if you're ever in grand central station go for it it's a lot of fun
1: yeah And what else have we done? I listened to the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on book bans. That was on September 12th. And Dick Durbin from Illinois is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And it was fascinating. I won't go into a lot of detail, but Dick Durbin started by talking about attempted book bans in the past from Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin to trying to ban comic books in the 1950s. So they had pros and cons, people there. One thing I'll say is I I feel like there were two big things. I'll just say that. The first was when the people who were in support of banning books and removing books were talking, they would give examples and read really explicit examples of sexual content and then say, do you want kids reading that? You think kids should be reading that? And then I looked up some of these titles, and they're like, for ages 15 plus or 18 plus. So they're mixing that message of kids and what's appropriate for kids versus young adults versus adults. So I found that really kind of disheartening because I felt like there's no resolution, and I don't think a resolution was the point. I think they wanted to get things on the books and start having a more pointed direct conversation about it. One of the big takeaways for me and one of the things I was thinking about a lot throughout the whole conversation was that people weren't talking about children's rights. It was all about parental rights and freedom of speech. But no one talked about kids' rights. And I just kind of felt like kids are just being pawns in this thing and no one is considering their rights which I thought was interesting.
0: And that's interesting because a lot of the pushback when you hear people talking about this is they'll say you as a parent get to decide what you want for your kids. It's that they're trying to do these umbrella bans that make it impossible for any child to have access to the book. So I'm not sure if I'm understanding what you're saying that were they not talking about it just in relation to book banning in general what do you mean they weren't talking about kids? I well, guess? a
1: child's right to understand the world. Oh, I see. And this was touched upon indirectly by some people who are in support of having diverse books. Mm-hmm. So there was that. But I just feel like the way people talk about children in this country, it's as if until you're 18, you belong to somebody and you have no say in your life. Some people would say that's true. And I just think, I think it's awful, personally, (laughs) you know.
0: No, it is. I mean, I guess I just don't quite understand what you would have liked to hear them say. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that they're probably like, I'm here to say that I'm right. And I know what is right for my child and a book
1: about sex, isn't it or
0: something. But I don't know the context of what you...
1: Well, yeah, I mean, they had uh, the, you know, pro and con people and the people who were for more diversity in the classroom, did talk about age appropriateness. And, but the fact that, like, just because you don't want your child to read this and I respect that right, it doesn't mean my child can't. Right. Or the entire class can't or the entire school mm-hmm. can't. Right. So, I mean, it was a political mess in the beginning. And I won't go into details about that because, like, people didn't stay on topic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah. I don't. I have the temperament, mm-hmm. obviously, yeah. <laughs> to um, to sit there and listen to somebody yeah. go off-topic. Yeah, mm-hmm. for their allotted time. Yeah. Well, I mean, we see that in Supreme Court justice hearings. I mean, it's ridiculous. I know it is, and I mean, and for me, I just think like so many people are being harmed by this, and the books that are being challenged and attempted to be banned are dealing with African American people of color and LGBTQ people, mm-hmm. and it's like they're attacking what they don't want in the community at large right and it's really obvious yeah so i've never watched a judicial hearing like that so it was interesting just to see kind of the format and the flow and i commend those witnesses who were there to testify for maintaining composure i mean Mm -hmm. because you know the cameras are on you Mm -hmm. so everyone presented their case and it was educational for me to watch
0: Right. And I mean, I think for me, the takeaway often of things like this is that how important it is to run for local office, if you can, and even if you don't want to run for political office to pay attention to what's happening in your local politics. And I think when you watch something like that, it makes you realize how hard it can be to participate, because it can be such a time suck. It can be so inefficient and unproductive. And that's really frustrating to people who do want to give of their time or do want to see positive change. Right. It's, it's a really difficult thing. And I'm, I'm not here saying I know what the answers are. But I think paying attention, I mean, I commend you for watching it. And I think paying attention and knowing what's happening is really important.
1: Yeah. The other thing we did was right in our backyard here in New Haven, Yale had a fantastic conference on popular romance fiction called The Literature of Hope. Oh, my gosh. Completely free. We
0: registered for it. It was over the course of two days. Friday night, we went in together. It took place in a humanities building on campus. Beautiful, very beautiful auditorium where we watched a documentary called Love Between the Covers, which originally came out in 2015. The producer, director, filmmaker, I guess is the best way to say it. The filmmaker's name is Lori Kahn.
1: And I really enjoyed this documentary. Yeah, it was really great. It really looked at the bond between women over romance novels, and how welcoming the writers are to readers, and how often readers become writers themselves because of their passion for the genre. Yeah. And I thought that she did a good job of having a a nice compliment
0: of romance authors portrayed in the film that she interviewed.
1: Yeah, when I hear romance, I think of certain things based on my background, and it's usually, I think, white heterosexual women. Mm-hmm. This conference was all about diversity, and one of the things I heard is that black romance is like the backbone of the romance community yes. these days and they also talked about lesbian writers and lesbian romances and gay romances every kind of romance you can imagine. It was really funny, because when we first got there, and we were sitting down, some people were finishing up a prior panel. And I heard one of the panelists say something like, Oh, yeah, my sister wants me to read this caveman romance. And she's like, he doesn't even have a frontal cortex. <laughs> it was just so, it's just so funny. Yeah, I mean, the the people participating
0: in this, the panelists, and then those of us in the audience, it was such a very special Time after the first evening, I turned to Chris and said, I feel like we just witnessed something so special. Yeah, so after they screened this documentary, then they had a two part panel discussion. The overarching title of this panel was Revisiting Romance. So they brought out the filmmaker, and then Miss Bev is how they refer to Beverly Jenkins, who writes black romance and is revered in the industry. And then Eloisa James, they had a conversation about this film and what it represents in the industry
1: today. Well, because since that film was made, there was a huge blow up within the Romance Writers of America, RWA, which was a huge organization. And just around the time of the Me Too movement, maybe a little bit before, they had a huge blow up over racism within the organization. So there was a lot of lamenting the loss of that community. And you could really feel it in the room that people were so happy to be back together. Yeah.
0: You can go to things now and people feel that way because of the pandemic. This was about, we've really lost this community. They used to get together every year with this huge group of people. They would do panels and educational things about how to write romance. And then it also gave them an opportunity to meet
1: their fans and sign books. It was a huge, huge thing. Yeah, it was a huge conference. And, and the focus was on craft. Mm-hmm. Some of the mystery conferences I've been on where they talk a lot about craft. It's not necessarily – I mean, they have time for fans to hear their favorite authors and to talk books. But one of their main agendas was on helping people – hone their craft. Right. Yeah. So
0: Miss Bev was talking about how some of that has moved online. But then the second panel involved B. Koch and Lee Koch who have opened the Ripped Bodice Bookstore, which is a romance-only bookstore that opened in LA several years ago. Like, I want to say five, six years ago. And they have just opened a second outpost in Brooklyn. And they were talking about how different their bookshelves look today, when they open this bookstore, than when they opened that one originally, and it has to do with how many different people are writing how much more diverse the romances are available. Yeah, now. right. And also on that panel was Monique Patterson, who's a publisher with Tor Bramble. And it was a really fun panel to have booksellers and an editor slash publisher on the panel as well.
1: Yeah, it really was. I mean, it was Such an education just Mm -hmm. to hear people talking about the diversity in romance. I mean, the writers but the types of romances, all the subgenres. One of the interesting things was the paranormal romances are the ones that fluctuate. They go up and down in popularity depending on I don't know what. But that is something that they've found, whereas like historical romance and other subgenre kind of stay steady, yeah, I guess, yeah, one of the things that people talked about initially was hiding their romance reading, and some people came out <laughs> during that introductory portion that they are romance readers for a long time, but they hid it because of the judgments of people around them or society in general looking down on women who read romance the thing is romance is by women for women about women that's one of the reasons it gets looked down on granted the genre has also risen (laughs) the quality of the writing and the storytelling has improved like all genres including literary fiction over the generations but that was really heartwarming to see so many women say for the first time I read romance, mm-hmm. yeah, because they found I think Miss Bev is the one who said it that more women came to romance during the pandemic because they wanted to know how things were going to end, yeah, you know, they wanted to read a story where they knew there was going to be a happily ever after, yeah, and then I think it was the publisher who said that the age of romance readers seems to be kind of going down more young people are coming to the genre. The bookstore owners
0: definitely said that as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So unfortunately,
0: I couldn't go on day two. Yes, but it was a full day of panels. I mean, it was so much I have so much written down. What do I want to tell people? The first panel was romance as a site of education, challenge and hope. One of the main topics they talked about there was that If you look at the genre of romance, over time, it's an archive of language and consent, who has the right to have a happily ever after, and looking at sexuality, desire and consent over time, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. Miss Bev was talking about how important it was to use a bibliography at the end of your books, she writes historical black romance. And she said people wouldn't believe what was in her books. Miss Bev wasn't even on this panel, but it was younger women of color who looked to her and read her books when they were coming up as young people and now are writers. And she had given them that advice, you know, do your research, put bibliographies in the back of your book so they believe what you're writing. And then the other thing they said is romance moves fast. It's reflective of what's coming ahead in our culture and in society which I think is so interesting as well. And at the end of that particular panel, Miss Bev was in the audience and she stood up and she said, I could listen to you guys all fucking day. She said, all we did back in the day, and she started writing in the early 90s, is write. She said, all of you are so, you care so much more about being inclusive and really think about what you're writing about. Not that she didn't think about what she was writing about, but there's just more attention paid to inclusivity now, I think. And then panel number two was called From Bodice Rippers to Bridgerton, Romance on the Public Stage. (laughs) And this involved people who are podcasting, there's two different podcasts, Faded Mates, and the Black Romance Podcast. And the Black Romance Podcast is hosted by a woman who is an academic. And during the pandemic, she decided she wanted to do a series of conversations with Black romance authors, because for the most part, they'd never been asked to tell their stories, which I think harkens back to part of what happened with the Romance Writers Association was just that Black authors weren't asked to participate as much as white
1: authors were. Well, they had leadership, diverse leadership, And that's one of the things that Mary Bly, Eliosa James, said, because she was in the organization for a long time and is obviously still kind of heartbroken over its demise or its brokenness. And she called one of her black friends and said, did this happen to you? And she's like, yeah, all the time. And -hmm. she's like, I'm so sorry. She's Mm -hmm. like, I should have seen that, and I didn't. So I think that the whole experience has opened so many people's eyes that just because you have representation doesn't mean everybody feels included. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And no attention being paid. And so that's why she said she wanted to develop an oral histories of these Black romance writers. And we'll put links to the show notes in, to this podcast. And then the Faded Mates podcast is two friends. One's an author, the one I just talked about, Sarah McLean, and her friend Jen, who was just a romance fan who asked her if she wanted to do a podcast with her. And they've been doing a Trailblazers series on their podcast of just various writers, including Vincent Verga, who wrote The Gay Wick. I think it's a series, but the first one was called Gay Wick. He was one of the first, if not the first, who had a male-to-male romance. And his book launched the same night as The Ramrod Massacre, They said all of his papers are available at the Beinecke library and that his trailblazer episode with them, just Sarah said it changed her life to do that episode. Mm. So I have not had a chance to listen to that, but I'm looking forward to it. One of the other things that was really funny, Jen, who's part of the faded mates podcast said that she was talking to a romance novelist who had just told her that she was at her hairdresser and her hairdresser said to her, what do you do for a living? And the woman said, I write romances. And she said, the hairdresser just lifted her finger and said, saving lives. Oh, nice. (laughs) Isn't that cute? I thought that was really sweet. One woman stood up in the audience and asked about what to do with her collection of books. Like she has all of her grandmother's romance novels from back in the day. And they said that it's really important to get in touch with libraries about that and archive them. And there are even some archive awards for young
1: collectors. Yeah. Which yes. is really cool. Honey and wax books. They have an award. I know Rebecca Romney was one of the founders of that. She's a kick ass rare book dealer. Who she collects. was there. Yeah,
2: yeah. I
1: can't believe I missed her. It was yeah. so sad because I totally have like a geeky crush on her, but she is a romance collector.
0: Yeah. And she stood up and said, come see me, come talk to me, you know, because she started one of these awards and really wants to work with
1: people to get their collections seen and in order. Absolutely. When I had the history of the book class last semester, oh my God, we talked a lot about young collectors and I mean, new collectors, but you know, young collectors getting people into that vibe of this is important. If it's important to you, it's important to collect. Yeah. And then eventually pass on. Yep. So exciting.
0: And then last but not least was the keynote at the end of the day, which was with Roxanne Gay and Miss Bev. They were in conversation with a local journalist. But the one big takeaway from that was that romance reading, for some people teaches that there is a better love available than what you necessarily experienced as a child growing up, whether it was the modeling that you witnessed from your parents or an experience that you might have had. And I thought that was really poignant. And then they also asked Roxanne Gay what her gateway to romance was. And she said it was Clan of the Cave Bear by Jean Owl. She was like, man, I learned a lot from that book. (laughs) And she said, and my parents thought it was fine for me to be reading that when I was a little kid. So that conversation was really <laughs> interesting. I won't keep talking. I could talk forever. It was such a special couple of days. And I'm so glad yeah. that we got to go. I am
1: too. I'm so glad you found that yeah. and told me about it and that I was able to attend a little bit of it because it was so refreshing and good for the soul and funny as yeah. well. Oh my I gosh. mean, one of the I, I didn't write down the name of the woman who did the opening statement, but She talked about how she came to romance at a young age, how the language of it infiltrated her writing at school. In sixth grade, she wrote an essay about her summer vacation or something like that, where she said she was fondling her dog, you know, (laughs) because... (laughs) It does have a very specific <laughs> set of language. Even though that's not what she meant, right. but you know, um, but just so much fun and, and good faith and wanting to be together and to believe in women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of kindness. We have
0: also gotten the opportunity to see Roxanne Gay several times, and she is so generous with audience questions, it goes long, and wants to make sure everybody gets to have their questions answered. And one woman stood up and asked about, indie romance writing, because she was an indie author. And there's a lot of movement in that there are a lot of self published indie authors out there writing really important things, again, trying to move the needle. She got very emotional, and she apologized. And another woman stood up who was a minister and turned to her and said, if you feel something deeply, let it flow, do not apologize. And it was just like a room where you felt like people could be vulnerable and say what they needed to say. And that's so
1: important, and be heard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so wonderful. And the thing is, we should say that this conference started because of a PhD student's work on romance readers. Right. And so this conference came together out of her research. So I just think that's amazing, because it was one of the best conferences that I've been to, and it was all put together by students. Yeah, it was five
0: PhD students, but one was whose idea it was, and then she got these others to help her. Yeah, so fantastic. So we will put links in the show notes to these romance authors we referenced and to these podcasts. More to come on romance in the future.
1: Yeah, now do you know if that documentary is available to stream? I don't know, and if I do find it, I will put it in the show notes. Okay, because Radcliffe is one of the writers that was interviewed for that. And she wasn't able to attend the conference, unfortunately. She's a big lesbian romance writer, retired surgeon now, who also started Bold Strokes Press. She said something in that documentary that romance is the fiction of hope. And I just love that. Yeah. Yeah. This conference was titled The Literature of Hope. As you were talking about things, I'm thinking it threatens some men Mm -hmm. to think that, oh, I might have to do more. I might have to actually try to be a better spouse or partner. Maybe that's one reason romance has been trashed so much because it's threatening to certain people. I think
0: it's also just threatening because of what you said earlier. It's for women, about women, written by women. And women are scary to the world for some reason, you know. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah. I'm so glad to be having my reading horizons expanded. Me too. So,
0: upcoming jaunts. Boston, baby. Woo, woo. We're heading to Boston tomorrow. We're
1: going to do our final Scarlet Summer jaunt. Jaunt. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to see some places, well, at least some streets where Hawthorne lived. We're going to have a meal at Chipotle where the corner bookstore used to be slash his publisher. And so, yeah, more to come on that and episode one we'll recap that. And then that will be the official end of Scarlet right. Summer. <laughs> and I am going on vacation to
0: Cape Cod next week and the Provincetown book festival is going on September 29th through October 1st. So I'm hoping it is kind of a ticketed affair. So I'm not sure if I'm too late. But I'm hoping, if nothing else, I'll Mm. wander around the bookstore and see if I can rub shoulders with some authors.
1: Yeah, I think you just have to register because they just want to know how many people are coming. At least that's how it was last year. I was hoping to go, but then I ended up having car problems and I wasn't able to go. Yeah, I'm hoping. So... I will spend some time there and even just get to the bookstore. I've not oh been gosh. to that bookstore. Yeah. So. And the library. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm very excited. I'm excited. Fingers crossed that, you yes. that Sending you good energy. What's coming up on your reading horizons?
0: My upcoming reads are Wellness by Nathan Hill. Nathan Hill is the author of The Knicks, which came out in 2016. I've been waiting for his sophomore <laughs> novel and it just arrived. I cannot wait to dig into this. And then Heartbreaker, which is the second book in The Hells Bells series by Sarah McLean, and Naked on Sex Work and Other Burlesques by Fancy Feast. This is a book of essays. She is a burlesque dancer down in New York City. And I cannot wait to read this book. It's got a very compelling cover with boobs with these beautiful like sequin pasties on them. Lovely.
1: I'm going to be reading And a Dog Called Fig, Solitude, Connection, The Riding Life. This is by Helen Humphreys. I have not read anything by her. I came across this book on a list of books for the writing life. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So I downloaded the Amazon preview. You know how you could do that on your Kindle. And I really liked what I was reading. So I reserved it at the library and just picked it up and cannot wait to read it. I'm looking for some comforting dog stuff because she writes about her writing life through the different dogs that have been in her life.
0: Oh, how lovely. Yeah.
1: And at the very beginning, she gets a new puppy. And of course, it's that what the F was I thinking? (laughs) You know, kind of thing. So yeah.
0: So for those of you who might have forgotten, because our Scarlet Summer has been so consuming, (laughs) what we are reading for our read along theme this year is books Books about about books. books. And you're wondering, what is the final book going to be? What's the fourth quarter book? We've been running that until
1: very recently ourselves. I forgot we were going to be talking about that. (laughs) Because we talked about so many other things. Oh my gosh, we had made a list. Both of us put books on a list. We've been talking about it. And then, of course, this morning, something else happened.
0: Yes, another book arose that wasn't even on any of the lists. You know, I think part of what happens in fourth quarter is like we start to feel pressure because it's the last book. For this theme. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's and you okay. don't want it to be a dud. No, no yeah. duds. So should we say the book we thought it was going to be? Sure. We thought it was going to be the Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. This is a fictionalized account of the women who
1: helped to write the Oxford Dictionary. Yeah, the Oxford Dictionary. So one of the characters, she's like six years old, As the men are going through words and words related to women are being discarded, she starts collecting them. That's all I know about that.
0: But we, we decided not to do this book because we found out that Pip Williams has a brand new, this year, 2023 novel out called The Bookbinder. It's called The Bookbinder being published in the United States. If you're not in the United States, it's called The Bookbinder of Jericho
1: by Pip Williams. And this is about... The women who worked at Oxford University Press, binding the books, doing the stitching, putting the physical books together, which is fabulous. And there's actually archival footage of women who did that. And we'll share that in our September newsletter. So you can kind of see some of the background to these characters. Pip Williams is from Australia and was doing research on these women at Oxford University Press, and they just were not letting her go.
0: Right. So she decided to write the bookbinder. It's also about how they were allowed to sew the books and bind them, but not read them. Right. So I'm hoping to read both the Dictionary of Lost Words and the bookbinder, The official book for fourth quarter read-along is The Bookbinder by Pip Williams. Yes.
1: And she said that you could read either book. They don't necessarily have to go together. There's a little connection of place and time, some characters maybe, but they're not reliant on one another. Right. They are standalone. We will announce in the September
0: newsletter the date for the Zoom read-along. We will launch the Goodreads thread when this episode drops. So join us there for the discussion. We cannot wait to talk to you about The Bookbinder by Pip Williams. And coming up next is our conversation with Julie K. Wood. About her new poetry collection, Something So Good It Can Never Be Enough.
2: Happy, Happy reading.
0: We are thrilled today to have back with us author Shulie K. Wood. This is her sixth time on the Book Cougars podcast. Last time was this year. It was on episode 179 during National Poetry Month. We did a deep dive into a poem that's actually in this new collection. That is true. That Julie is here to talk with us about today. So, surely what we thought we would do is introduce the book, the name of this new collection, Something So Good It Can Never Be Enough, a book of poems. And we thought we would start by having you read I mean, I don't know if you're allowed to say one of your favorite poems, or if we just say one of the poems you'd like to read today. Are you not allowed to pick favorites with your own
2: poems? I won't pick favorites, but I will pick where this title of my collection comes from. So, it comes from part of one of a poem. Um, so, I'll read that. Great. All right. This poem is called My Mother's One Request. I must have been 15 when I made them the first time, too skinny and standing by the stove. I had appointed myself family baker and I kneaded, rolled, poured batter and dough into shapes everyone would want. My mother loved bread, pumpernickel loaves, cornmeal muffins, sourdough slices. But what she wanted most was my buttermilk rolls from a New York Times natural foods cookbook. And whenever she asked, I slipped the apron over my head and tied it behind my back and pulled out ingredients, yeast and honey, buttermilk and butter, unbleached white flour, sea salt, baking soda. To do it right, you had to let the dough rise twice before dividing it into 24 pieces and letting all of it rise again. Rising takes the kind of time you give knowing you won't get it back. But I was 16 and 17 and did not understand these kinds of hours. My mother stood beside me at the stove when it was over, pinched a roll open. Steam loosened, floated free. For years, my mother asked me to make her buttermilk rolls, and I did, and then I didn't, having tired of the recipe and its need for each long rise. But I can't tell you how often I remember those rolls now, the way my mother savored each one, how she wanted each trayful to yield more than it did, and how I did not know, had no earthly idea, that something could be so good it could never be enough.
1: Mm. Mm. beautiful thank you so much for sharing that julie yeah.
2: thank you there's a lot about food in this collection which was i was not really aware of when i put it together there's right. a lot about food
1: apparently when you just started reading that one, i thought about the other poem where you're talking about um your mom cooking and then you cooking
2: yeah
1: um there's a lot about cooking yes yeah so you're just realizing that More recently than when you were writing it once.
2: I I realized it once I put the collection together and the people who were blurbing were writing about it. And I was like, oh, I I guess there is.
0: (laughs) And do you think that's because you, you, there's also a lot of about your mother in this collection. And do you think that's because there's something special about the time you spent together breaking bread?
2: It could be. Emily, you know, it's a mystery to me. I think I didn't realize I wrote so much about food, but. Uh, people keep pointing it out. I, it's not something I'm conscious of, but I must be thinking about food a lot. Um, and then it's funny because my mother, one of the poems is my mother says she does not know how to cook and she still says that. And so it's always surprising because I feel like her, she had an, a, a, a cooking that, a way of cooking that was very unconventional. She was from Mexico, came at 13, so she didn't really learn cooking from her mother, although she learned parts of it that she would make like enchiladas, but she would make them her way. And at the time, like cans of enchilada sauce weren't readily available at the grocery store the way they were now, you know, back in the 70s when I was growing up. So she would use something else instead, like uh, spaghetti sauce for the enchilada sauce. And so it was always like my mother's version of, so she just kind of cooked She, I think she cooked wonderfully, but it wasn't any, it wasn't rarely from a recipe and it was just sort of putting things together. And so that's how I learned. And then I unlearned it. And then I think now I'm trying to learn it again. So
0: Mm, yeah, following rules and recipes. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Well,
1: and just, you know, that thing with, with mothers who do cook differently and don't cook from recipes, you know, sometimes you can't exactly get that flavor that you knew as a child because of that. Mm-hmm. because your mom was so creative and different and made do with what she could find.
2: Right. It's fascinating. I just made enchiladas the other day, and they're never as good as what she made us when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. Never.
1: So yeah. mm-hmm.
0: um, so for listeners who are newly being introduced to you, um, the reason you've been on the ep- the podcast six times is not only because you're friends of ours, particularly a deep, long friend of mine. We grew up together. But you've been very prolific over the last five years in particular, and you've written many different kinds of books. Can you give just a quick rundown of those for listeners who aren't
2: familiar? Sure. I write across genres. So, I write poetry, um, short fiction, and memoir personal essay and so those my books are quite varied because I have a short story collection I have two poetry collections I have a memoir I have a flash essay collection and so I specialize in smaller pieces I have not had a novel come out I I don't know that I ever will I like reading short pieces and so I like writing them too I think they're interesting maybe because I grew up primarily writing poetry I'm used to shorter pieces
0: I started writing them down and I was like, wow, Shuley's had a memoir. She's had a short story collection. She's had poetry collections. She's been in a flash nonfiction anthology twice, I think, maybe even three times. And But your love, you always say the love that you come back to is your writing of poetry.
2: It's the genre that I feel like I, I'm most... Um I, I shouldn't say I'm at home, especially writing memoir. But it's the because it's, I've been writing it the longest. It's my go-to one. When I'm stuck, I always go back to poetry, and I love I love writing poetry. So it just feels comfortable to me. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to
1: to poetry and writing, are you more of a word nerd or are you more of an image capturer?
2: And when you say word nerd, what do you mean by like that? Like being very
1: specific with words and when you're working on a poem, revising, like really changing particular words in and out until you find the exact
2: right word for that poem or that um, line. I am more of an image person. So I really like writing about moments. Uh whether they're from my life or whether they're made up. I think of a lot of my poems as telling a tiny little story. Um, they don't read, I don't think, like little short stories or anything, but I feel like a lot of them tell a little story in some way. People always assume that my poetry is all true, and a lot of it is, but a lot of it isn't, too. Well, maybe not a lot, but some part of it isn't. And so in poetry, you don't have to tell the truth. So there could be details in here that are made up. But I definitely start with an image or a moment. And that's what I'm most concerned about creating. And then creating also with words the emotional landscape behind that moment, because I think that's really important to convey. And you do that with not just word choice, but rhythm, um, your the language, um, well, which is word choice, the length of your sentence, which has to do with rhythm. And so then I start working on those things. But first is just the feeling or the moment is what I'm most concerned about, especially in a first draft.
0: So Chris and I decided what we would do is we each have a f- well, a favorite, right, or one that really sure. spoke to us, but we didn't tell sure. each other. So we, yeah, this is <laughs> so, fun. so Chris, you want to go first? Oh, sure. And, and, and we thought we would tell you, and maybe what should okay. we do? Should
1: we have her read it, or just talk about it? I don't know. That would no. Okay, I was going to say that would be up to Julie. So the one that I really have gone back to and read, and I just think it's a fantastic tribute to being a writer is. We're just not that into you. Uh. <laughs> That's the
0: ah, one so I chose. Get out. Are you serious? <laughs> oh Are you serious? Oh, my gosh. That's so Oh, my funny. gosh.
2: Now that is I funny. Have it. I
0: can prove it. I'm not making it up. My bookmark is right there. Oh, my gosh.
2: That's yeah. so awesome.
0: So, yeah, so talk about this. One. First of all, it's called a found poem. So, so maybe right. you can so describe it. So a found poem it. is yeah.
2: made up of actual words uh, that you don't make up that you find in uh, different places. Um, for example, if you said, I'm going to take words that I see on actual graffiti walls and you take all of them and then you choose which ones, whether it's phrases or words, and you put them together and compile them in whatever way you want, kind of like a, a jigsaw puzzle you're creating out of those words. So you can take newspaper clippings and say, I'm just going to take these First sentences of all the obituaries and I'm going to make a poem out of them, but you, you move them around. You choose what you want and don't want. So that's what a found piece is. I decided I would do a found poem based on rejection letters I'd gotten. So I read through them and I would cut and paste little phrases that I liked. And then I put them all in front of me and moved them around and made a poem out of them. And I'm happy to read it. So it's called We're Just Not That Into You, a found poem made entirely out of rejection letters sent to me by literary journals. I'm sorry, I'm afraid, as you know. Unfortunately, we struggle. Sorry, very sorry, please accept our apologies. Had a good discussion about it, don't have the space, could not find a place, isn't enough room. Plenty to admire, much to admire, forced to pass, unable to accept, we regret, we will not. Please do not interpret this, odds are always long, must decline. I'm sorry I don't have better. We delight in, we appreciate, agreed on the wonder of, are grateful, didn't understand, had trouble with, needed more, not what we're looking for. Sorry to disappoint, we know we've taken a long time. Think of us, keep us in mind. We're sad, not for us. We've assembled a list of other, we wish you success, we encourage you, we wish you all the best, thank you for trusting us, thanks again with care, with interest and care. Wish you nothing but the best. Good luck. Best of luck. Best of luck. Best of luck. Elsewhere.
0: <laughs> so good.
2: So awesome. For those who aren't seeing the poem, it's written, there are kind of two columns. And I tried to have sort of on the left-hand column, the more like sad stuff and the other stuff that's trying to be like peppy, like, well, there's plenty to admire. And um because you get that sometimes in in rejection letters is kind of funny. They're trying to be peppy, but also telling you. But right. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So
1: nicely. Oh, I love this poem so much because, you know, people often talk about taking awful experiences and turning them into art. And, you know, this is such a twist on that. Taking, you know, concrete words that you've received right. that were not what you wanted to hear and turning them into something that's creative and that really speaks right. to people obviously.
2: Yeah, (laughs) at least the two of us. (laughs) That is so funny that the two of you picked the same piece. It's
1: really funny. And but
0: you know, the thing that I wanted to talk about about it is exactly what Chris just said. But then also, you know, at the very front of this collection, you have an acknowledgments section, where you thank Mm -hmm. the editors for the public of the publications where these poems have been placed before. So obviously, you've also gotten acceptances. And so can you talk about how, I know, I think on one of the times we've had you on in the past, that particular year, you'd set a goal to get 100 rejections. Mm -hmm. Now that you have published more, and this is your second poetry collection,
2: do you still have that sort of goal in a year? I do. Every year I do. I strive for a 100 rejections I have not submitted enough this year to get them but if I did I would surely get <laughs> that many rejections um, and so it's a way to motivate myself to keep um, sending your work out and that it takes a lot of work and actually I really enjoy it I just don't have enough work right now to be sending out a lot that's why I haven't done it lately I really enjoy it I'm not many writers love sending out work but I really do I have, I always say I have about a 10% acceptance rate. That's actually, I've realized not true in recent years. Sometimes it's a lot lower. And in one year I had more, but a lot of times it's a lot that my percentage is a lot less. So it's just a business thing. You know, I tell a lot of beginning writers who are afraid of rejection, you just got to get used to it. That's what happens when you're a writer. And so I've compiled lots of letters and I, I would say 99.9% of them don't bother me mm. at all. It's like, I, it's okay. Yeah yeah you know? and i've I've been an editor on the other side and have had to pass up good work um maybe because there was something you know that they needed to fix that was just this one thing, but you know you're not working with them on that, or it could be that for that issue they already have something that's similar you know it it could be all sorts of reasons, or sometimes there's a piece that I think is good, but it's not what I want to publish um and so I've been on the other side of it, I get mm-hmm. it, so I don't take it. Personally, at least I try. Not right.
0: To. Or you make beautiful art out of it. Like in this case, right. That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's the true. other thing, before we ask another question, I just want to say the other thing I loved about this poem is the title is so perfect Ooh, for it.
2: Nice. <laughs> well, there's a lot about relationships in right. here and about romantic relationships and, you know, Getting rejected is part of it, you know, love and loss, and so I, I think it fits well with the collection, even though it's about rejection letters. So
1: yeah, yeah, it was a nice surprise because when I saw the title, I made assumptions. Um, I mean, the we, the <laughs> we is different because usually right, you're, you know, right. he's just not or she's just not into you right. or, or I'm. So right. like the we're, it's like hmm, <laughs> and oh my god, I loved it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, good, yeah. good. So in your time of writing, your writing career, have you seen ebbs and flows or fluctuations in places to publish poetry
2: and how poetry is published? Well, I started sending out work many decades ago, um, so it certainly has changed since then. I don't know that it's changed a lot in the last five years, although I think there's a lot, there's certainly t- a million uh, literary magazines. So everybody can find something for what they want. I'm sorry. If you can't, then you're just not looking hard enough because there are so many online magazines, print magazines, but especially online that's exploded. So there's there's a place for any kind of work now. And I feel like genres are so open now. There's a lot of openness to bending of the genres and to doing some sort of mashup that only you created, and you can find a home for that. And I think I didn't feel like that was so easy, you know, especially decades ago, and maybe even not 10, 20 years ago. So there's just a lot more openness, I think. Right. And and it's
1: also, I think, just from my experience as a reader, I've noticed that there's more of an acceptance of online publishing of a poem Mm -hmm. or short story, what have you, I guess what I'm trying to say is there used to be such a stigma against it that it wasn't really getting a poem published or a short story published if it wasn't in a book or in a paper journal. And it seems to me, at least from my perspective as a reader, that maybe that's not quite the case anymore.
2: I think you're very accurate. I would say that the one thing I've heard from an agent and whether that agent is right or not is up for debate. But one of the things that she told me when I was talking to her is she said, I would make sure that a lot of your stuff is in print magazines. It's not available. She said, because if someone can just find all your work really easily, why should they buy your book? Mm-hmm. And I took that to heart. Um, so I make sure that I have some print only publications because it's true. If you, if you just are sending it all out there, it's sort of free in that sense. And that can hurt in the sense if you're, trying to publish a book and people are like, wow, I can just find all these poems. Now it takes a lot of work to like, if I was to look up, you know, Emily Fine's book and look at all your poems, that would take a lot of work. So I don't know that anybody's doing that. That's the one thing I would say, but I I could see her point Mm. um, to keep some things. And that's why I also keep when I publish a collection, I don't publish all of them. So not only do I have print magazines, print only for some of them, but I make sure that only about a third to half at the most are published from a collection,
0: right? Because I think there were just upwards of twenty acknowledgments, and there's over sixty poems in this collection. So right,
2: yeah, right. So that's yeah, about a third. so that's a
0: good segue to how do people find this book and buy it? Because one of the things I like about not reading poetry online and having it in a lovely collection is putting it on my coffee table or on my nightstand, which is my preferred place to have my poetry collections and really thumbing through it when I'm in the mood.
2: I love that. Um, I do too. So I have a, a nightstand full of <laughs> a stack of poetry collections I'm reading right now. Um, you can find this, probably the easiest thing is to just go to my website. It's on the front of my website. My website is shulykawood.com, which is s h u l y c a w o o d.com. And I have a link in there to my publisher. I have a link in there to buy it directly from me. Those are typically the best ways for authors if you want to support the author to buy it. You can also, of course, buy it through Amazon and Barnes & Noble or request it from your indie bookstore. And um, I definitely love supporting independent bookstores. So uh, bookshop.org. Um, so you can find it multiple ways, but I, like I said, if you really want to support the author, the most, the best thing you can do is buy it directly from them or from the press that is publishing it.
1: Nice. And from the author, you can get a personalized autograph. Yes. It's gift giving season coming up around the corner and poetry collections, I think, are beautiful things to give.
0: Yes, indeed. And, um, one other question is, you're also a teacher.
2: I am. I love teaching. It's been a, Wonderful and newer part of my life. I haven't been teaching for decades. I started teach- teaching several years ago, and I love it. I love supporting other writers. I love seeing them have ha- aha moments. And I—I've been—I was asked recently about my teaching style and what I learned from other teachers. And I definitely hope that I took the best of what I learned because I've had some fabulous teachers: Joyce Dyer, Matthew Goodman, Imogene Bowles. Um, just showed me how to encourage writers. And I've also had some teachers that I will not name who knew exactly what they were doing, but they said things in discouraging ways. So instead of, um, lifting up the writer, they might criticize them harshly instead of offering that advice, instead of saying to you, Emily, Oh, um, maybe what about considering some line breaks here? And they would say something like, you have horrible line rate breaks. Right. You need to work on that. It's just not, not good. So I, try very hard in my classes to um, be giving supportive feedback. When I give feedback, I have a prompt writing workshop, and it's not for feedback or criticism at all. So I always find something that I liked. And there's always something to like in people's work. And I tell them what it is that I noticed that I liked about their work. And I think it's important to hear what's working well, not just what's not working.
0: And that prompt writing workshop is open to folks. It's every Tuesday, correct?
2: Every Tuesday at noon Eastern, uh, it's through Press 53. You can find it on my site. You can find it on the Press 53 site. It's $10. We spend an hour together. We read a work. We write. It's a lot of fun. It's a great group of writers. I thank them in this acknowledgement section, but because of them, I um, am always looking for new work to share with them that's not mine. Um, and then I always read it and create a prompt from that piece. And so I end up a lot of my pieces in this collection came from me trying out my own <laughs> prompts before I gave them to my class. And they just, I love seeing when I give a prompt, what different things they come up with. I have fabulous writers in there. They're very welcoming to all levels of writers, which is great. Uh, writers of every level. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Um, so it's a warm, welcoming group and they are, definitely the highlight of my every every week i just love this tuesday
1: and we
0: will put all of these links in the show notes for people
1: yeah and you know both emily and i have taken workshops with shulie and enjoyed them and got so much out of them so mm. highly recommend oh yeah.
2: thank you thank you it's always good to have you all on the mm. class
1: now may may we talk about one more poem of <laughs> so, course it's another writer poem we writers mm. mm. um And I have to say, I I have two questions, but um, one is more of a comment, and I don't remember if we talked about this on a past podcast episode or if it was in the workshop, but talking about how how much you love that Edith Wharton short story that has that twisty ending, um, this poem, We Writers, made me think about that with those last two lines. I thought, you know, it's that kind of like... It's not so much of a twist, but maybe it is. So my question is, how much does your short story writing influence your storytelling in a poem?
2: Do you know what I mean? I think that, um, that thing about Edith Wharton. So for anybody who didn't listen, Edith Wharton had a, a short story that I still loved to this day called Roman Fever. And there's a twist at the end. God, Anne Patchett has this a lot in her work. I was just talking to Emily about that the other day, um, where she'll have this turn that you don't see coming. And, but then once you see it, it's like, Oh, well, then yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I think that I, subconsciously try to do that in my poetry too. So I'm not sure that it's that my short fiction is influencing my poetry, but more that I, I think that is in my DNA of writing, that I at least try to do that without realizing I'm trying, where something is different at the end, towards the end that I feel like if you can just predict the end of a poem, it's not so interesting. And I'm not saying that I put in like fire department at the end of, you know, (laughs) like weird things where it's like, what? But I hope that there's some insight or some... Just something revealed, mm-hmm. um, at, towards the end of my work. Um, I, I like writing that way. And so in that sense, it's influenced.
0: Yeah. I mean, I call them gut punches. There definitely mm-hmm. are, or there's always a turn of phrase. It's not always at the end, but somewhere, That's somewhere that I'm like, Oh, she did it again.
2: <laughs> the poem, My Mother's One Request. There's a line that I think where I feel like the poem takes a turn where it says, rising takes the kind of time you give knowing you won't get Mm -hmm. it back. Yeah. And so then there is another layer that appears at that point, for me at Mm -hmm. least, and that becomes apparent in the rest of the poem. Yeah. Yeah. Do we
0: want to take it out on truly reading?
2: Well, I really enjoy the poem in which I failed to teach my dog how to Mm -hmm. fetch, which I thought would be Chris's (laughs) favorite (laughs) since she's got dogs. That's a good one. That's okay. And that one appeared... In the Sun magazine. Yeah. Poem in which I fail to teach my dog how to fetch. I throw the tennis ball. She chases it, grabs it in her mouth, sprints as far from me as possible in our fenced-in yard. She plops down beneath a Leland cypress. The day is filled with opposites, moist mulch and dry grass, broken branch and wholehearted effort. Here I call... I'm using the sweet voice the vet psychiatrist told me to, not the hell no one, I prefer. Here, I call again. I use the hand signal, my right palm facing me, beckoning from air to flat against my chest. In my left hand, a chicken-flavored treat. My dog holds the ball in her mouth, blinks at me. Uh-oh, I say. Uh-oh is our neutralizing word, the word the trainer said to use when the dog ignores your command. You're not supposed to keep repeating the command, or else the dog learns only to respond after the third or fourth or fifth time, or in my case, never. Here, I say, do the hand signal, offer the treat. Who wants a treat? Already, I have resorted to pleading. The day is long and light, short in reply. When my husband first brought her home when she was 14 weeks old, I was so overwhelmed by her wildness, whimpers, ignorance of rules, that I had a meltdown on our corduroy couch. One day you'll love her, he said. How do you know, I asked. I know, he said, because I know you. He settled onto the couch beside me, held me in his arms. That saying about love being patient, I suppose it's true. Here, I say, and the day, like any other, fills with light and shadow, weed and flower. Uh Uh-oh, I say. Here, I say. She stares at me. You don't always get a choice about what life brings, what it does not. She spots a squirrel, darts after it, leaves behind the ball that now no one will retrieve. There are a hundred lessons she must be trying to teach me, and I have hardly mastered one. Mm. Beautiful. So beautiful. Yes. Mm. Thank you.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, well, you know, we dropped a little um, tease. If you want to know what the big reveal is at the end of We Writers... Buy this collection. <laughs> Something So Good, It Can Never Be Enough by Shuley Kaywood is available now. Buy it from Shuley Kaywood. You can get it personalized. I'm a huge fan of this collection. I love it so much. Same. Thank you, Shuley. Thank
1: you. Thanks for listening to the Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keough Sound Design.